Welcome to the Your Health, Your Way podcast, the health podcast for renegades. I'm Martha, a family nurse practitioner and the creator of the website, therenegadenp.com. I have over 10 years of clinical experience helping patients heal their bodies and feel their best. I'm here to share actionable information about integrative health, nutrition, and fitness that can get you started on your journey to optimal wellness. I'm also here to answer your questions and talk with health and wellness experts. Remember that the materials and content within this podcast are intended as general information only and are not to be considered a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. How much water should I drink? Can I rely on my thirst to figure out how much I should be drinking? Is tap water safe or do I need to filter my water? What about bottled water? You'd think that with something as simple as water, the answer to these questions would be easy. But like most things in the world of health, there are a lot of factors to consider when answering them. Today on the podcast, I'm going to dive into all of these questions to hopefully provide a little more clarity for you when it comes to all of your hydration needs. Today's episode is brought to you by my ebook, Three Steps to More Energy. If you feel tired a lot or like you should have more energy and you want to know why and what to do about it, then this book is for you. I have personally struggled with fatigue for most of my life and had severe fatigue for several years. Seven years, a master's degree, and a lot of clinical experience later, I've got more energy than I've had in a long time, and I've helped dozens of others find more energy too. I created this book because I don't want you to struggle as long as I did. In it, I cover the three steps that I would start with if I had to go back to being so exhausted all the time and start over. These three steps give you the most bang for your buck when it comes to fixing your fatigue. If you've ever Googled how to have more energy, you've probably scrolled through a few pages of the over 2 billion results and not come away with a good way to get started. More information is not always a good thing. In Three Steps to More Energy, I tell you exactly how to get started so you can get back on your way to living your life. To check it out, click the link in the show notes or go to bit.ly slash rnp3steps. That's bit.ly slash R-N-P, three steps. Welcome back to Your Health, Your Way. I hope you all are doing well. This episode is many weeks late because I've been out doing things and recording podcast episodes sort of just fell to the bottom of my list. Also, I hope that my dogs will stay quiet while I'm recording this. There is a squirrel that lives in a tree in our backyard and is very, very busy getting ready for winter, and my dogs really like to bark at it as it runs around collecting things. So hopefully it's taking a little break right now. All right, in this episode, I'm talking about water because I think there are a lot of things that we've been taught about how much to drink and what is safe that isn't entirely correct or at least needs more context to understand how to make these recommendations work for you. When it comes to how much water we should be drinking, there are a few things to consider. First, your fluid needs are based on your fluid losses. The RDA for water is based on milliliters per kilocalorie burned. So the broad recommendation is based on the average calorie burn of an average person, but in reality, it needs to be based more on your metabolic demands, not blanket recommendations. Now, I realize that there does need to be blanket recommendations because that covers a majority of the population and there can't be individualized RDAs, but I think understanding where these numbers come from can be helpful in determining how much fluid intake you need. So at rest, you make about 0.1 milliliters per kilocalorie of water via your metabolism. And at the same time, you're losing about half a milliliter, so 0.5 milliliters per kilocalorie of water through your respiration and your skin. 
This water loss is not the same as sweating. It happens because your skin is a semi-permeable membrane, meaning things can move through it and you are moist underneath your skin. So if you're making 0.1 milliliters per kilocalorie and losing about 0.5 milliliters per kilocalorie, then your net loss is about 0.4 milliliters per kilocalorie burned. You're also losing water via urination. This amount is incredibly variable and not just based on your metabolism and your need to eliminate waste, but also based on your diet. The average person, again, we're talking about averages here, loses about 0.6 milliliters of fluid per kilocalorie burned. So this works out to just over one milliliter per kilocalorie of fluid loss. It actually is 1.1, but one is a much nicer number to work with. And this is what the RDA is based on. So 2,000 kilocalories per day equals 2,000 milliliters equals 64 fluid ounces equals 8 times 8 ounce glasses of water. So that 64 ounces or 8 8 ounce glasses of water is a good place to start when it comes to maintaining your fluid balance. But your activity levels and the environment you live in also impact your fluid needs. And this 64 ounces includes fluid from all sources, not just the water you drink. It even includes the water present in the food you eat. So if you don't exercise and you don't live in a hot climate, you probably don't actually need to drink 64 ounces of liquid every day to keep your fluid balance in check. I'm not going to throw more numbers at you because you can guesstimate your increase in fluid needs based on an estimate about, of about how many calories you burn during exercise. And if you're exercising in a hot environment or live in a hot environment, you'll need even more fluid. This adds up pretty quickly. So if you exercise for longer periods or live where it's hotter, don't be surprised if you need to double your recommended 64 ounces. When it comes to relying on your intuition to hydrate you, is that enough? In general, drinking to thirst is adequate to maintain hydration and fluid balance in day-to-day life. But if you exercise or are a menstruating person in certain phases of your cycle, thirst is not a sufficient guide. Using your urine color to determine your hydration status is an okay measure if you use the color of it when you first go to the bathroom in the morning. This tells you about your hydration status from the previous day, but this doesn't work during exercise. I'm not going to talk about the physiology of how this works, but I hear a lot of people saying that during race day, they feel like they're well hydrated if they have to go to the bathroom during or immediately after their race. This isn't true and has a lot to do with electrolyte balance and how well your kidneys are being perfused, which just means how much blood flow is going to your kidneys, during exercise and less to do with actual hydration status. But if you stop peeing for a significant period during your race or during the day, that's probably an indication that you could use some more fluid. There are a lot of things that can impact your thirst, which makes relying on how thirsty you feel not the best way to manage your hydration. There are many drugs that can impact your thirst perception. Older people tend to have not as strong of a thirst drive, so they tend to not be as well hydrated and tend to get more dehydrated more easily due to decreased ability to compensate. For menstruating individuals during the luteal phase of the menstrual cycle, the thirst mechanism is down-regulated due to a decrease in blood plasma volume, which is, can be up to 8%. This occurs because there's almost no way that you could make up an 8% decrease in blood plasma volume by drinking alone. So during that phase of your cycle, you'd just be excessively thirsty all the time. On a somewhat related side note, this is one reason why I think it's important for menstruating people to track cycles, especially if you're an active person or an athlete. Because if you're training or doing any activity during this phase of your cycle, you do need to be more aware of how much you drink since your thirst mechanism is off. What about what happens if you don't drink enough water? Moderate to severe dehydration can make you feel pretty awful, and it's pretty obvious when you are more than a little dehydrated. 
but mild dehydration can sneak up on you and is something that you might not really notice. Your body can also adapt to this not so great but not really terrible feeling of you being mildly dehydrated, which makes it even harder for you to tell. Mild dehydration, which is as little as 1-2% to loss of total body water, can put a strain on your kidneys, cause blood pressure changes, increase fatigue, cause constipation, cause dry skin, and even cause some cognitive issues. Your brain is made up of a lot of water and can shrink just a little bit when you are mildly dehydrated. This can cause things like headaches, mood changes, anxiety, problems with concentration, and impaired memory. Obviously, the impacts of moderate or severe dehydration are serious and require medical attention, but mild dehydration is not something to be ignored either. Something I absolutely have to cover in this episode is alkaline water. If you've followed me for a while, you know that I love to hate on alkaline water. So I'm just going to get this out of the way right now. Alkaline water is a scam. Don't waste your money. But allow me to explain. Alkaline water has a pH of around 8.8. Regular tap water usually has a pH of around 7.5. If you remember way back to high school chemistry, acids have a pH below 7. 7 is a neutral pH and bases have a pH above 7. So when something is alkaline, it is more basic or less acidic. Alkaline water that you buy commercially typically also has a high level of dissolved minerals in it too, usually calcium, magnesium, and potassium. Alkaline water neutralizes your stomach acid. This is where it becomes problematic. The pH of your stomach is very acidic. There's hydrochloric acid in there. And the acidity of the mixture of chewed food and stomach acid, which is called chyme, is what signals your body to secrete digestive enzymes and bile as this mixture passes from your stomach into the small intestines. So if it's not acidic enough, those signals don't happen and you don't get digestive enzymes released, which has a big impact on your digestion. It can also have a negative impact on your gut microbiome. Decreasing the pH of the stomach can hurt the good bacteria that grows in there because it likes a very acidic environment and can allow for an overgrowth of harmful bacteria in your gut. There are studies that confirm that regularly drinking alkaline water can cause a shift in gut bacteria towards less desirable bacteria, especially an increase in a species called Prevotella, which is associated with an increase in the production of TMAO, which is considered a risk factor for some types of cancer and cardiovascular disease. In one study that compared drinking pH-neutral water to alkaline water, the people who consumed the neutral pH water had a 15% higher bacterial diversity in their guts compared to those who drank alkaline water. I have not personally reviewed any of the studies out there showing the benefits of drinking alkaline water, but from what I've read from other reliable sources who have reviewed those studies, any of the benefits showing from drinking alkaline water are likely a result of the increase in calcium and potassium consumption that comes along with alkaline water, because remember, it has a lot of dissolved particles in it. Spring water is slightly acidic, a pH of around 6.5, as are most natural sources of mineral water in the world. Drinking water that is slightly acidic has been associated with improvements in the gut microbiome because the good bacteria that live there thrive in an acidic environment. Based on this information, I'd say that it is much more important to be looking for a mineral water or adding minerals to your water if you're drinking water that has a low mineral content. I also want to talk about tap water because I think there's this idea in the wellness world that tap water is inherently unsafe. So I want to cover this to hopefully help you understand how to determine if you should be filtering your water or not. All of the water that comes out of a tap originates from some natural source, lakes, rivers, etc., and then gets filtered and disinfected using chlorine and then travels to your home. 
This process is incredibly important because of things like, oh, I don't know, dysentery. If you didn't grow up playing the Oregon Trail computer game, you might not be very familiar with this one. Also, cholera and giardia are some common things that are found in natural water before it's cleaned and filtered and travels to your home. Most of these aren't a problem in the U.S. because we have a process in place for sanitizing our water supply. However, there is some evidence that tap water does have a negative impact on gut bacteria and even suggestions that it allows for the growth of pathogens that are resistant to multiple antibiotics. It's unlikely, based on several studies that I found, that this is directly due to the chlorine in the water and more likely due to byproducts formed when the chlorine reacts with organic material in the water. And then these byproducts are absorbed in the gut and cause a disruption of gut bacteria. The studies that have been done on this generally compared those who drank tap water to those who drank bottled water. I found a study that was on gastrointestinal illness in general and used sterilized water as a control. The results of that were that people who drank all other types of water had an increase in GI illness. The highest was 18% over the control, I think. There also may be a link between the consumption of chlorinated drinking water and colorectal cancer. This has been seen in epidemiological studies in humans and in studies done on mice and appears to be mediated by changes in the gut microbiome. However, I do want to point out that from all of the studies I read, it appears that the risk for any negative side effects related to drinking chlorinated tap water was actually pretty minimal. Most of these studies only looked at what's called relative risk, which means the likelihood of something happening compared to something else. This is how most risks are reported in headlines as well. So while you might be 18% more likely to have a GI illness when drinking chlorinated tap water, the absolute risk only increases by 1%. I'm going to use some made-up numbers to quickly illustrate what I'm talking about because it's much easier to understand with round numbers. So say that there's a 10% absolute risk of developing something. If your relative risk increases by 18%, that means that your absolute risk goes from 10% to 11.8% because 18% of 10% is 1.8%. So without knowing what the absolute risk is, relative risk is essentially meaningless. So what's the big fat takeaway from all of this? You probably don't need to be overly concerned about the chlorine in your tap water. If you live in a place where the tap water quality is otherwise not great, you can usually find this information for your area online, you might consider installing a water filtration system or filtering your water before you drink it. But in general, tap water is safe to drink. Also, if you have a strong family history of colorectal cancer, you might consider filtering your water. I'm not even going to attempt to address the other possible contaminants in tap water because there is a lot of research to sift through and it was hard to find general assessments because it varies so much from place to place. One important takeaway I have from what I did read is that it's just as likely for your house, so your pipes, to be the cause of the contamination as it is to come from the water supply itself. So that's something else to keep in mind. If you're concerned about your tap water quality, you can buy home testing kits to determine what's in your water. If you do this, please also understand that the dose makes the poison. So some things may not be concerning in very low levels. There will be people who disagree with me on this, but consider the fact that water itself can kill you if you drink enough of it and you understand how the dose makes the poison. The last thing I want to talk about is fluoride because this is a much bigger deal in my opinion. First, the evidence that fluoride is important for dental health is abundant and strong. This is why there's fluoride in toothpaste. And honestly, I really don't understand people who do not use fluoridated toothpaste. I actually switched brands of toothpaste. I currently use Hello brand because they offered one that does have fluoride in it. And it's that important for dental health. 
depending on who you ask, putting fluoride in water either clearly shows benefits to dental health or it clearly does not show benefits to dental health and is harmful to your health in other ways. So, of course, the truth lies somewhere in the middle. First, one of the main concerns is fluoride toxicity. And from what I could find, more than 80% of fluoride toxicity in children is due to the ingestion of fluoride-containing toothpaste, and fluoride toxicity in adults is actually very rare. One of the biggest concerns is that fluoride consumption by a fluoridated water is difficult to control because everyone consumes different amounts of water and people get fluoride from other sources, making it possible to consume more than what's considered generally safe. I did find that the effectiveness of fluoridated water has not been validated by any randomized controlled trials. This is likely why some people are adamant that there is no evidence to support that it's appropriate. Because there is evidence that fluoridating the water decreases the incidence of cavities, but basically preventive dental care is better at preventing cavities because cavities do still occur at a significant rate even where the water is fluoridated. And since the benefits of fluoride to dental health is from topical application, it's likely better to focus on something like fluoridated toothpaste versus water. So again, we're left in a gray area. Of course, would you expect anything less here? The stand I'm going to take on this matter is that if you have a means to filter your water, do it. But I definitely don't think that it's something worth stressing about if you are otherwise generally healthy. This is an also an area where there needs to be more research done since the evidence seems to be skewed towards showing the benefits but not towards exploring the potential harms. It's also important to note that you don't need to buy a super fancy water filter to remove fluoride from tap water. A simple charcoal filter such as a Brita will do just fine. So that is all I have for you related to water this week. If you have any more questions that you'd like me to cover, come find me on Instagram. I'm at the underscore renegade underscore NP. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. I would love to hear from you and happy hydrating and I'll see you next time. 